daily experience of the Chagim, we go from the lowest point on the calendar to the highest point on the calendar, right? The lowest point on the calendar is certainly Tisha B'Av. It really records the, or tells the story, and what we read, you know, we read Echa on Tisha B'Av, which tells the story of Am Yisrael in crisis, right? We have the depth of despair. We have the national catastrophe of the destruction of Yerushalayim, the destruction of the temple of the Beit HaMikdash, um, the subsequent exile, the collapse of the Davidic dynasty, and of course, the sense of betrayal in our relationship with God, right? So that's really, I think, what we're experiencing on Tisha B'Av. We sense that God is um, hasn't simply um, uh, you know, destroyed us, but also has subsequently abandoned us, right? We have a sense that God has uh, hidden his face from the nation. And Echa doesn't do a, doesn't make a real effort to try to offer us too much hope. Um, certainly Echa ends on a note of despair, right? We have um, the ending of Echa, ki imaos me'astanu katsafta aleinu ad me'od, right? So the end of Echa, it really ends with uh, God having rejected us, God being extremely wrathful with us. That's not a particularly positive ending, right? It's a particularly um, heavy ending. And there's a sense of uh, that we haven't resolved our crisis, especially our relationship with God, which is why I think it's so surprising that seven weeks later, we find ourselves in Rosh Hashanah, right? We're, we're in an entirely different space in, in every way, right? So, you know, we, we move from Tisha B'Av, the lowest point, in our national annual experience to Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, right? Um, higher and higher points in our national experience, in our relationship with God, right? Certainly, if on Tisha B'Av, we feel really a, a real sense of despair. On Rosh Hashanah, we feel a sense of hope. We're looking towards a hopeful year, a year in which we are expecting and certainly uh, praying for 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 good things, right? We we have a sense of optimism that accompanies us throughout this period of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Instead of feeling alienated from God, which of course is, I think, really one of the 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 most difficult parts of Tisha B'Av. We have a real sense of connection to God, right? We spend the whole day, uh, both on Rosh Hashanah, both days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur connecting with God, speaking to God, pleading with God, crying to God, we feel we feel completely connected. I mean, that's that's the experience. You know, I think also even on a national level, things have changed so drastically because on Tisha B'Av, we're a beleaguered and um and persecuted nation. We we have a sense of shame, right? There's a sense not just that we have brought shame upon ourselves, but we've brought shame upon God, right? Upon the the idea of God's people, right? Which has really been violated on Tisha B'Av. But of course, Rosh Hashanah is all about assuming the mantle of a nation that has a destiny, a nation that has a message, a nation which is representing God proudly, with dignity, with nobility to the world. I mean, it's a really, really 
different experience. It's 180 degrees different. You know, instead of feeling that we've reached the end of our rope, we're really at the beginning again, right? We've restarted the cycle. And, you know, really, I think the question that I want to address in tonight's share is, what spurs this transformation or what helps us along in this transformation? I mean, you know, it's it's the summer months, you know, certainly Aleph Elul, we start with, you know, thinking about tshuva. We start by thinking about, you know, we say every day, uh, Psalm 27, Le David Hashem Ori. There are things that we're beginning to do during this period that are meant to start turning our attention toward Rosh Hashanah. But really the only thing that kind of navigates this transformation from Tisha B'Av to Rosh Hashanah are the Sheva Dinechemta, the seven prophecies of consolation, which unlike other Haftarot, are not chosen because of their connection to the parasha, but rather they're chosen to connect to this time period, which moves us from despair to optimism. That's why these seven prophecies of consolation are chosen. And you know that's really what I want to talk about because I think that it's only those uh, haftarot that really mark this time period and also teach us how, um, how, how we're meant to navigate this very significant change that happens during this seven-week period. Okay, so let's just look for a moment at these Sheva Dinechemta. I brought for you this list. Uh, you know, it's a list that we experience every year. I'll bring it a few more times on our PowerPoint. I'm not expecting everybody to know it by heart, but certainly these are um, of the more familiar, I would even say more beloved Haftarot. They're very beautiful. They're very lyrical. They're very filled with optimism and with promise. And this takes us from Echa to Rosh Hashanah. And I, I want to suggest that what we have here is a progression, a kind of a logical movement that pulls us from the depths of despair. And I always kind of picture uh, Am Yisrael on Tisha B'Av kind of lying prone on the ground without strength. We're fatigued, not just physically, but theologically, emotionally, psychologically, Am Yisrael has kind of lost its, its bearings, right? And slowly but surely what we have through these Haftarot is the ability to get back up on our feet again and to reassume the mantle of our position as a nation with a destiny. And of course, also to begin to restore our connection to God. Now, uh, the, the, the source for saying these seven Haftarot actually um, is a, a Tosfot in Megillah, <clears throat> where here uh, the Tosfot tells us, uh, we'll just start by reading, I mean, there's you know, a whole bunch of, of discussions here of the different Haftarot that we read, um, the special Haftarot that we read uh, around this time period. So, you know, before Tisha B'Av, we read something called Gimel de Puranuta, three Haftarot that uh, tell us about the upcoming um, bad things that are going to happen. And uh, here in this part that I colored for you in yellow, it says, Uvitar Tisha B'Av. And after following Tisha B'Av, Sheva Dinachemta, we have the seven Haftarot of consolation, Vitarte Ditiyuvta. And following that, right, following Rosh Hashanah, we have two Haftarot of Tiyuvta, meaning of Tshuva, of returning to God. 
Here are the seven haftarot of Nechama, Eluhen. That's what I've uh, put here in blue. Uh, the first one is Nachamu, Nachamu. The second one is Vatomer Tzion. If you look at the left side of the screen, I've showed you also where they appear in Yeshayahu. The third one is Aniyah Soara. What's interesting about this one is that it's out of order. Look at what we have. Nachamu, Nachamu is from Yeshayahu Mem, from the 40th chapter. But Tomer Tzion is the 49th chapter. Uh, the third one is the 54th chapter, but the fourth one is the 51st chapter. So the only one that is out of order is the third. Everything else seems to follow the, uh, the order of the chapters in Yeshayahu, in the prophecies of consolation in Yeshayahu. And, um, and, and this is going to be a question for the Tosfot. We'll see in a moment why this third one is out of order. The fourth one is Anochi, Anochi, Hu Menachem Chem. That's what we have here in Yeshayahu Nun Aleph. That's a very beautiful Haftarah. Uh, the fifth one is Roni Akara. The sixth one, which we just read this past Shabbat, the Haftarah of Kitavo, well, we needed a good one, right, to follow Kitavo, because it's a pretty hard Parsha uh, to experience. And this is really a fantastic uh, parak in Yeshayahu. It's Kumi Ori, often translated as rise and shine and bring out your glory, glory. That's the beginning of uh, chapter 60 in Sefer Yeshayahu. And it is the sixth of these seven prophecies of consolation. Now, the Toso goes on and asks the question, you know, um, uh, uh, why are we makadim aniyah soara before roniyah kara? Why do we put number three before number four? And the, the Toso answers, diderech hanichamot liyot the way of these haftarot is to become more and more uh, consoling, more and more far-reaching in the consolation. There is an increasing progressive uh, kind of consolation. And that's the reason that these two were put out of order. So, you know, I, I'm not sure if I would go completely in that direction, but I would pick up on uh, this uh, Tosafot and say, well, you know, it does seem as though there is some kind of sequence of events that are taking place here in these seven Haftarot of Nechama. And maybe before I talk about <clears throat> what's going on in these seven Haftarot of Nechama, I'll make a, a kind of, a, I'll give you a brief explanation of what we're talking about in these 27 chapters in Isaiah. Okay, so from chapter 40 through chapter 66, Isaiah's prophecies are about the period of Shivat Zion. They're about the period of the return from Babel during the latter half of the sixth century BCE. This is the reason that Isaiah has been uh, you know, it's such a difficult book to to kind of trace its uh, composition, right? Because the first part of Isaiah is about an entirely different time period. It's about the middle of the 8th century BCE. It's about the period of time in which the kings of Judea were Uziah, Yotam, Ahaz, and Chizkiyahu. 
And that's 200 years earlier, starting in chapter 40 in the book of Yeshayahu. These chapters are uh, the prophet's attempt to awaken the Judeans in Bavel, to bring them back to the land. They are contemporary with Haggai, with Zechariah, with Ezra and Nehemiah. We don't know exactly when, but the, the, the subject is the uh, period of return to the land after the Babylonian exile. Okay, so that's just to clarify matters. I'm not gonna talk about um, you know, uh, uh, any matters of authorship in the book of Yeshayahu. That's less interesting to me, but for my purposes, it's very important to understand that these prophecies are addressing the period after the Chorban, the attempt to try to restore. And that's, you know, to restore Am Yisrael to its proper place, to restore Am Yisrael to its proper role, to restore Am Yisrael to its former glory that it had before the Chorban. This is very important because these are the prophecies that we experience every year following our reading of Echa, following our commemoration of Tisha B'Av. Now, I'll just pause for a moment and I'll say, if there are any questions, um, I, I'd rather save them to the end. Uh, if there's any, you know, burning questions, you know, clarity questions, so please feel free to unmute yourself and, you know, and and just just jump in. Um, <clears throat> in any case, though, what 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 is happening in these prophecies, and not just the ones that are chosen here for the Sheva de Nechemta, for the seven prophecies of consolation, what's happening in these prophecies are that these prophecies basically are fixing Tisha B'Av, right? They are rectifying the story of Echa. They're taking all of those uh, descriptions of despair and exile and destruction that we had during the period of the destruction and they're fixing them, okay? So this I think is really important to understand in the backdrop of what we're gonna be talking about. And by the way, it is important just to understand that in general, we have this really, um, uh, very, very depressing book of Echa. I think I mentioned before, but, uh, you know, we didn't see it inside that Echa ends with this, you know, really very um, kind of uh, mournful or, or, or upsetting pasuk, right? You, God, have surely rejected us. You have been excessively wrathful with us, right? So that we have this kind of very difficult ending of Echa. Echa leaves us there. And I think it is important to understand that in general, the books of Shivat Zion, Chagai, Zechariah, and, and some of the other books as well, have to contend with Am Yisrael's um, crisis with the terrible events that I'm sure I've gone through. It's not, you can't just erase the past. You have to address the past, especially if you want to convince Am Yisrael that the time has come for rebuilding, that the time has come for consolation. I'll just show you one example of this in um, Sefer Zechariah. Sefer Zechariah is in a constant ongoing conversation with the book of Echa, so that if in the book of Echa, we have this terrible description of the old people 
who are sitting on the ground in Yerushalayim, who are putting dirt, dust on their head, who are putting on sackcloth because they're in mourning. But I think it's more than just mourning. I think that they are preparing for death. And what follows this description is an incredibly evocative and I think very poignant and painful uh, depiction of the children on the streets of Yerushalayim who are fainting on the streets as they say to their mothers, where is grain? Where is wine? These are their last breaths, breath before they, they, they collapse on the streets of the city. And along comes Zechariah and offers the opposite image. He says, and this was Ravamital's, one of Ravamital um, of, of Yeshivat Haratzion, Alava Shalom. This was one of his favorite psukim to, to quote from Zechariah, Perak Chet, Koamar Hashem Tzvot, Od Yeshvu Zkenim Uzkenot, Birchavot Yerushalayim. Um, uh, uh, old people, elderly people will yet sit again on the streets of Yerushalayim and they will reach old age, right? The streets of the city are again filled with children. But of course, here it's not children who are fainting from hunger, it's not children who are about to expire from starvation, but instead the, the sounds of joy and playing is what fills the street of Yerushalayim. So Zechariah here seems to be in conversation with Echa. This is just in order to uh, establish that it seems pretty clear that anything that is written during the time of Shivat Zion has to address that kind of uh, terrible situation which 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 we left off with at the end of the period of the Chorban. Now, one thing seems clear, and that is that Chazal are very aware that Yeshayahu is in conversation with Echa. In fact, they say all of the difficult prophecies that Yirmiyah prophesied, and here they're talking about the book of Echa, Isaiah preceded these prophecies with a cure, right? And what this is a remarkable midrash. We're not going to go through it, but what this midrash does is it goes through every verse of the first chapter in the book of Echa, and it shows you how Yeshayahu already offered the cure for each of these terrible things that happened. That even though we seem to kind of trail off at the end of Echa with a sense of doom, with a sense of catastrophe, with a feeling that nothing can be rectified, that's not true. We already, uh, uh, what already is in place are these prophecies of consolation, which are, you know, waiting in the drawer for the right time. Okay, so all of this is just to establish that what we're going to be talking about tonight it seems pretty clear that Chazal are aware of this. And this is why they, uh, they institute these seven prophecies of consolation uh, in order to, to accompany us and in order to kind of create uh, this movement from Tisha B'Av until Rosh Hashanah. Okay, so let's start by um, describing where we find ourselves in that first weekend, that first Shabbat after Tisha B'Av, right? This year, uh, Tisha B'Av was on a 
was, what day was Tishabab? It was on a Sunday. It was Nidche, right? So this year was on a Sunday. So we waited almost a full week before we got to Shabbat. And that week, that week, we were accompanied by Echa, by, by the book of Echa. And the book of Echa is a book that has no Nechama. It has no nechama. It has no consolation. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that the word nechama does not appear in echa. It actually does appear in echa. The word nechama appears in echa six times. Let's look at some of the appearances of that word, right? So in Perak Aleph, we have in Pasuk Bet, Ein la menachem, she has no consoler. Ein menachem la. She has no consolation. She has no consoler. Ki rachak mi many menachem. A consoler is very distant from me. Ein menachem la. She has no consoler. Ein menachem li. So it's a bit of a, you know, of, of, of a problem here, right? We, there is the word dechama, but it is always used in the negative. There is no nechama. The, the sixth time that the word appears in Echa, that's in Perak Bet, and it's used as part of a rhetorical question. What can I possibly compare you to so that I can offer you consolation? Your, your brokenness is as great as the sea. Who could possibly cure you? There's no cure. There's no consolation. Her brokenness is like the sea. So we're left swimming in this sea, salty water, tears. It's a tempestuous sea. It's a stormy sea. It's one that offers no, um, no, no, no consolation, no calmness, no ability to uh, be consoled, right? And along comes the first haftara, the haftara of Parshat ve'etchanan, and that's the beginning of Yeshayahu's prophecies of consolation. How does this prophecy open? Nachamu, nachamu, ami, right? We call it Shabbat nachamu, right? Why do we call it Shabbat nachamu? Because the Haftarah opens with the word nachamu. The first thing that we need after that very um, uh, uh, difficult experience of Tisha B'Av, we need God to come and say, consolation. There is a way to be consoled. And of course, we refer to these chapters as the prophecies of consolation, not just because they open with the word Nachamu, but because the word Linachem is strewn throughout these chapters over and over and over. And of course, it frames a kind of a frame for these chapters. If the first pasuk opens with the word nachamu, nachamu, the last chapter, chapter 66, has a, a pasuk, uh, pasuk yud gimel, right? Uh, verse 13, that uses the word linachem three times in rapid succession. Ki'ish asher imo t'nachamenu ken anochi anachamchem like a person whose mother is consoling them, so will I console you, and you shall get consolation in 
Jerusalem or through Jerusalem, right? So the, 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 the chapters are framed by consolation. It's the first thing that we experience in the Haftarah, in the first Haftarah after um, Tisha B'Av. Of course, there's no way to go on if there's no sense that consolation is possible. And, you know, other psukim, uh, we're going to see other psukim in these chapters that, uh, that offer consolation, one that we won't see in the Haftarot, but does appear in these chapters is, for example, uh, this pasuk, ki nicham Hashem tzion, nicham kol I believe we read it as one of the Haftarot in Sefer Bereshit. But again, just to give you a sense of how uh, dominant this word is throughout these prophecies of consolation, you're going to see nechama over and over and over. And of course, that seems to be the first thing that Chazal uh, deemed necessary to give the Jewish people following the experience of Tisha B'Av. I'll say one more thing about um, this nechama, this lack of consolation in Echa, before uh, we saw this pasuk in Echa Perek Bet with the rhetorical question, what can I compare you to so that I can offer you comfort? That's an amazing simile, right? I alluded to it before, right? It's, it's, a, it's the, as great as the sea is your brokenness. It also has a wordplay, right? The breakers of the sea, and the brokenness of the people, right? It, it's a wordplay that works in English and in Hebrew. Shivrech and mishbireyam, right? So there's a wordplay here. We're being told your brokenness is like the breakers of the sea. And of course, the yam, the yam is unbridgeable. The yam, you can't put an anchor into the, into the sea. It's too deep. It's mysterious. It's vast. It's stormy. It's violent. It's filled with salty waters that, of course, as we noted, seem to be a sea of tears. And it is a frightening image to describe Amisrael's lack of stability, their lack of consolation. And I want to point your attention to um, a, an image that comes up in the fourth Haftarah, where in general, we're going to go in order, but I, I, I just, I, I couldn't avoid this, right? In the fourth Haftarah, the fourth Haftarah also opens with Nechama. Anochi, Anochi, hu menachemchem. God says, I am your comforter, Okay. Look at what he says here. I am your comforter. Anochi, anochi, menachemchem. You see what I put here on the on the screen. The anochi Hashem elokecha, rogahayam. I am God, who knows how to calm the sea. Right. I left you back there in echa. I left you swimming in a tempestuous stormy sea where you felt you had no possibility of calm, of tranquility, of serenity, of consolation. Well, God comes and says, I can calm the sea and I can become your consolation because of that. Okay, so there's a lot of, 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 of things that are going on in these haftarot, which are helping us to move through this kind of process of rehabilitation. I want to turn your attention to the second Haftarah. 
The second Haftarah is the Haftarah um, uh, um, of Parashat Ekev, right? So this is uh, the Haftarah that starts with the words Vatomer Tzion Azavani Hashem Hashem Shechani, right? This is from Yeshayahu chapter 49. What's interesting about the opening of this Haftarah is um, that, you know, when we part from Echa, so I've already noted, we part from Echa in a very harsh way, right? We turn to God, you have truly rejected us, you've been excessively angry at us. But if you look two verses earlier, in, in Echa Perek Hey, Pasuk Kaf, we have a question, which is kind of uh, thrown at God. Lama lanetzach tishkachenu? Tazvenu laorech yamin. Why have you forgotten us for, forever? Why have you forsaken us for the length of days? Okay, this question, which is kind of hurled at God, contains a, a real um, theological crisis, right? God, you've, you've rejected us. You've forgotten us. You've forsaken us. Okay, now, there are only two places in all of Tanakh where these two verbs are used in conjunction with each other and in conjunction with God. Only two places is God said to forget and to abandon. And the other place is in our second haftarah of the seven haftarah of consolation. And it starts out, we're hearing echoes of Echa. We're hearing Yerushalayim speak. Don't forget, the people are still in Babel. The Judean exile is still happening. And Yerushalayim is still saying the same thing. God has forsaken me. God has forgotten me. That's what we hear. But unlike in Echa, here God responds. At the end of Echa, we hear the people saying, God, why have you forgotten us? Why have you forsaken us? And God doesn't respond. And here in Yeshayahu, God has forsaken me. God has forgotten me. And now we hear God's response. Can a woman forget her child? Can she stop having compassion on the fruit of her womb? Right? What's the answer to that question? The answer is yes, in dire circumstances, like in Echa, she can, right? Usually she doesn't, right? This, of course, is the example of the ultimate human relationship, the one that stirs compassion and love and sacrifice for the other and, and nurturing. And yet, as we know in Echa, because of the terrible uh, uh, situation of the famine in Jerusalem, we're told that the women were eating their children. And so this question is a loaded question that God asks. He says, can a woman forget her child? And then he goes on and says, Gam even if in certain circumstances, because humans are humans and they're frail and they are fallible, sometimes a woman can forget her child. But I, says God, 
I will never forget you. This is an unequivocal proclamation. And it's the second step. If in the first step, God gives us consolation, in the second step, step God says unequivocally, I have not forgotten Jerusalem. I have not rejected Jerusalem. I have not abandoned Jerusalem. Moving on to our third Haftarah. This Haftarah is the Haftarah of Parshat Re'eh, right? And this is the one that's out of order. Now, you know, we saw that the Tosvot says that, you know, it's an order of progression of more and more consolation. Uh, I don't know if that, if I find that so compelling, but there is something interesting that seems to account for this order. And that is that in in, 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 in the book of Echa, and, and of course in the period of the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, Jerusalem comes crashing to the ground. But it's not just that Jerusalem comes crashing to the ground, it's that her glory is lost. Her beauty is lost, her, um, her prosperity, that which was her calling card to the world, that which made her shine and glitter and gleam, all of that becomes destroyed, right? Jerusalem loses her glory. Look, look at this description in the fourth chapter of the book of Echa. We're told, Echa yu'am zahav. How is the gold become dimmed? hatov. The finest gold has changed. Tishtapechna avnei kodesh. Berosh kolchutzot. Those precious sacred jewels have spilled out into the street. And this is a very interesting description. Um, why are there jewels lying in the streets of Jerusalem? So I think there, there are two possibilities here, two very obvious answers. Number one, this is a description of the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. When you destroy the Beit HaMikdash, which is filled with gold and silver and copper, and don't forget the, you know, the Avnei HaChoshen, all of those precious stones, what happens is, is that all of these stones roll into the street, right? So that's what's being described here. That's one possibility. A second possibility is that nobody's picking up the stones, why is nobody picking up precious jewels? Why does nobody care about gold and silver and sapphires and pearls and all of the precious stones that are so uh, valuable? Of course, there's an obvious answer because there's nothing to buy. There's no bread in the city. Gold has no value. If people are about to die of starvation, if there's no bread to buy, this is a fulfillment of a prophecy um, that we find in, in two different Nevi'im, in two different prophets who prophesied the events of Jerusalem's collapse. Yechezkel in Perak Zion and Tzfanya in Perak Aleph. Both of them say the same thing. Kaspam uzehavam lo yuchal lahatzilam biyom evrat Hashem. Their gold and their silver will not be able to save them on the day of God's anger. And so they're left on the street. They have no value. They have no market value. And so they're just in the street. But there's a third point that I think has to be made about this description of these precious jewels, these precious metals that are in the street. And that is that it is clearly a metaphor 
Because look at the next pasuk. Look at pasuk bet. B'nai Tzion hayikarim, the expensive children of Zion, hamisulaim b'paz, who are valued like gold. Echa nechshavu l'nivlei cheres, ma'asei yedei yotzer, how they have been treated as earthenware pots, the work of the hands of a potter. These uh, stones are a metaphor for what is really the glory of Yerushalayim, what really is the reason that Yerushalayim glitters and shines and draws people's uh, amazement. And that's not, of course, the actual physical beauty of Yerushalayim, but the beauty of the inhabitants of Yerushalayim. Well, we've lost all that because it's all lying in the street. Yerushalayim is worthless. Yerushalayim's people, her residents are worthless. Once we had a Yerushalayim that was filled with pninim, with sapirim, with pearls, and with sapphires, and now we have a Yerushalayim that is filled with corpses that are treated as if they're earthenware pots, which of course anyone who's ever walked through um, different tiulim in Israel knows how earthenware pots were treated because everywhere you go, there are hundreds and thousands of pieces of ancient pots that people, when they finished using them, they just threw them into the street. Look at what Yeshayahu does in his third, in this third Haftarah. He says, this is how we open the Haftarah. There's that word again, right? She's an unhappy, uh, uh, an impoverished, storm-tossed city that cannot find consolation. Well, now, says the prophet, I'm going to take all these precious stones and I'm going to put them into your foundations. I will make your battlements of rubies. I'm going to rebuild Yerushalayim, but I'm not just going to rebuild Yerushalayim into a regular city. It's going to be a city whose glory is restored. It's going to be a city that once again is going to be overlaid by precious jewels that is going to have gems and that is going to be shining and prosperous and, and, and a marvel to everyone who passes by. But look at the next pasuk of this third haftarah in Yeshayahu Nundalid. V'chol banayich limudei, limudei Hashem v'rav shalom banayich. Right? And now we turn to the real jewels of Yerushalayim the children, all the children will reassume their position of spreading the glory of God because all of these children will be known as the disciples of God. What's the continuation of this pasuk? Al tikrei banaich, ela bonaich, right? That's not really the continuation of the pasuk, but that's the limud, right? That's what Chazal say. When you, who are the builders of Jerusalem? The children of Jerusalem. The banim are the bonim. Jerusalem's glory is not just its physical reality, but it's the children who are serving God and therefore 
have this nobility about them. And that's the third step here in the promise, right? So we first have consolation, and then we have God's promise that he hasn't abandoned Jerusalem. And now we have the promise that Jerusalem's glory will be restored. Let's look at the fourth haftarah. This is the haftarah of Parashat Shoftim. It happens to be one of my favorites. Uh, I mean, you know, it's hard to pick favorites, but I, I will say that it's my son's Bar Mitzvah, one of my sons, Bar Mitzvah Haftarah. So I'm allowed to, 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 to take this one on as my favorite, but it also is just, it's just a, an amazing Haftarah. And, um, you know, I, I'll just say, you know, God promised um, in, in the third Haftarah, which of course was out of order, that he's going to restore Jerusalem to its glory, right? But one of the things that we have to understand <clears throat> about Yerushalayim is that Yerushalayim fell to the ground. Right? That's the description in Echa Perak Bet. It fell to the ground. The key word that appears over and over in Echa Perak Bet is the word Aretz. Right? All of the buildings of Yerushalayim are lying on the ground. The people of Yerushalayim are lying on the ground. The gates of Yerushalayim. Look at what we have here in Pasuket. Tavu The gates have 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 sunk into the ground, right? What does it mean to sink into the ground? They're buried. Yerushalayim is buried. Yerushalayim is dead. Yerushalayim now is buried. By the way, this is not just a uh, kind of a metaphoric image. If you if you uh, if you had walked through Mesopotamia two hundred and fifty years ago, you would have seen many 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 buried cities, including uh, including Ninveh and Nimrod. And Bavel, right? They were all buried. They were all buried in the sand. Well, Yerushalayim now has sunk into the ground. And in Pasuk Yud, we see the elders of Jerusalem who are sitting on the ground. They're putting dust on their head. They're putting on sackcloths. This is, of course, images of mourning, but it's more than mourning for another person. It is, I think, I mentioned this before, it's a preparation for death, right? They've put on their shrouds. They've, they're rolling in the dust. Ki afar ata, ve'el afar tashuv, right? They're, 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 they're preparing themselves for imminent death and burial. That's what this, the, the story, that's how the story leaves Jerusalem. Look at what Ishayahu says here in this fourth um, haftarah. Uri, Uri, wake up, wake up. Leave she uzech Zion. Clothe yourself with strength, Zion. Leave she big day tifartech. You're, you're recognizing these psukim from Lechadodi, right? Uh, clothe yourself in, in clothes of majesty. Look at the part that I, that I put in blue. Hitna ari me'afar kumi. Get up, shake off the dust, dress yourselves again. Don't wear sackcloth, don't wear shrouds, don't roll in the dust, get up, shake yourself off and prepare for this next stage. It's time to stand up again and reassume your position of nobility. That's Haftarah number four. Okay, let's go on, let's look at Haftarah. Number five, 
Oh, I'm sorry. There was a, no. I, I wanted to say one more thing about haftarah number four. Haftarah number four has a, is a very rich haftarah, and yeah, I think it also deals with um, with another uh, kind of major, um, <laughs> perhaps the most major issue uh, that that Echa leaves us in. I alluded to it before, and that is the the standing of Am Yisrael vis-a-vis the world at large, okay? So we have this description after the destruction of Yerushalayim of blind people who are wandering through the city. Okay, so, you know, we could discuss whether these blind people are actually physically blind or is it a metaphor? They, they're not seeing. They're, anyway, there are blind people that are wandering in the city. They are covered. They're, 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 they're defiled with blood. Why are they defiled with blood? Because they're blind. They can't see. And the city is covered in blood. The city is, is, is wall-to-wall corpses. And so everywhere they go, they trip over. Uh, bloodied corpses below you everybody who has survived the carnage nobody wants to touch them they're so defiled they're so disgusting they're covered with blood suru karulamo go away you contaminated one they call to them suru suru altigao go away go away don't touch us who is saying these words? Who is calling to the people of Yerushalayim to go away, not to touch them? It, I mean, everybody in Yerushalayim seems to be in the same boat. So who's talking to them? Look at the continuation of the Pasuk. Ki natsu gamnau, when they wandered around, amru bagoyim, lo yosifu lagor. It was said amongst the nations, they can't live here, right? This is kind of a almost a haunting um, prophecy or, or prediction of what eventually happens to the Jewish people as they wander around the world. The nations regard the Jewish people as bearing the stain of their own contamination. Obviously, we're not talking about real blood, right? We're talking about something metaphoric. Everywhere where the nation goes, Everywhere where Am Yisrael goes, other nations say, go away, go away, you're disgusting. You can't live here. That is a very demoralizing image to take with us out of Echa. And so look at this fourth Haftarah. Look at what the prophet says in Yeshayahu Nunbet. <clears throat> Break out in song. Um, uh, ruins of Jerusalem. God is consoling his people. He is, he is saving Jerusalem. He's redeeming Jerusalem. God has revealed his arm, his sacred arm, in front of all the nations. Everyone in the world is going to see the salvation of God. And look at what the prophet says to the people who are living in Bavel. He says, suru, suru, turn away, turn away. Sham, leave there, leave the galut. Tamei al tigau. Be very careful. Don't touch anything that is impure. 
You have to go out of that impure place of exile. Hibaru, make yourselves pure again. No say, clay Hashem. You who bear the vessels of God. You hear it, right? Yeshayahu here, or this Haftarah in Yeshayahu has restored Am Yisrael's sense of their own purity their own nobility, their own dignity, their role vis-a-vis -vis the world. In, if in Echa, they are ashamed before the world and the world is mocking them and looking at them as the bearers of the contamination of having been rejected by God, the world sees Am Yisrael as impure after the Horban. <clears throat> well, along comes this fourth Haftarah and says, no, no, no. You got it all wrong. You are currently in a place of impurity, but you have a way out. Purify yourselves, return to Jerusalem, return to a place which is going to, um, uh, um, where you're going to reassume your role as the bearers of the vessels of God, the bearers of God's purity. Okay, that's our fourth Haftarah. Um, we're going to move on now to the fifth Haftarah, which I think is really very significant. So we've seen that God has offered consolation. We see that God has promised that he hasn't rejected them. We see that God has promised to restore the glory of Jerusalem, that he has um, uh, promised that Yerushalayim, he's told Yerushalayim to get up, shake off the dust, prepare themselves. And now we turn to the people and we said, it's time for you to return to Jerusalem, to return to your role as the bearers of purity. And now we turn back to Jerusalem again. Jerusalem, the first image that we meet in the book of Echa is an image of Jerusalem empty. It's a very eerie image because of course, Jerusalem was a place that was bustling with pilgrims, with people coming to bring korbanot, with people coming to the Beit HaMikdash, with, with people coming to, 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 to the palace of the king. And suddenly Jerusalem is empty. Look at these words of emptiness. How has the city sat lonely? She was like a widow, right? All of these images of loneliness they, they, they continue throughout the first chapter of Echa. What does our fifth Haftarah tell Jerusalem? Enlarge the place of your tent. Spread out the size of your tent. Don't be stingy here. Make that city bigger and bigger. It's time to build. Yemin Moshe, Mishkenot Shananim, Nachalat Shiva, all the way out to Ramot and to Gilo and to Har Choma. That's what Yeshayahu is saying. He's saying, Ki Yemin Usmol Tifrotzi. Right? Also sounds like Lechadodi. You're going to uh, spread out to the right and to the left, right? And look at what he says here in this last line. You're going to forget the embarrassment of your youth. 
lotis kariod. You will no longer remember the shame of your widowhood. Okay, so Yerushalayim is now being filled with people. And now that Yerushalayim is filled with people, the people who have come back, the people who have left a place of impurity and come back to reassume their role. Let's look at the Haftarah from this past week. Haftarah number six. Now I will say that in the book of Echa, the, the description of, of, of the Gever in, in chapter three um, is a description of darkness, right? This Gever, this suffering individual who, who represents Am Yisrael on their way into the exile, right? He is shrouded in darkness. Right? He's in darkness. Why is he in darkness? We say it every day, twice a day during the month of Elul. Hashem Ori Vishi. If God is not with him, he is not, he doesn't have the light of God, right? <clears throat> and so that's the state of the Jewish people after the Korban. They are steeped in darkness. Well, along comes this sixth um, uh, haftarah of Yeshayahu, which says, Kumi, get up. Ori, spread the light. Kiva orech, for your light has come. Uchvod Hashem, alaych zarach, because God's glory rests upon you. Right, darkness is 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 covering the earth. The alayich, but on you, Am Yisrael, Yizrach Hashem, Uchvodo alayich yirae. Vehalchu goyim leorech umelachim linogazarchech. Right, so Am Yisrael has to reassume its role. What is its role? Its role is to reflect God's light onto the world. It's to be le'or goyim, a light unto the nations. The idea is, is that God gives Am Yisrael his statutes, his laws, his morality, and Am Yisrael's goal is to reflect it upon the world so that the world will, will, will become a place of light, a place of truth, a place of, of, of joy and morality, and that's what we have in Haftarah number six. And so now we have the people back in the city. They have reassumed their role. They've reassumed their role towards the nations. And we move towards our seventh Haftarah. I'm going to skip this. That was our sixth. Okay. Our seventh Haftarah. Here we are in Sos Asis. Oh, there's a mistake here. This Haftarah actually goes till Samach Gimel Tet. But okay, that's just a, a, a typo. Um, and, and here we recall that in Echa, the people are, are crying. Um, they're crying night and day. Um, and um, they're being told, get up and, you know, use your position as the Shomrei, the Shomrei HaChomot, the guards of Jerusalem's wall to cry before God and try to elicit God's compassion. And that's, of course, to no avail, right? In Echa Perak Bet, 
the guards of Jerusalem's walls are unable to elicit God's compassion. Well, here we return to a city that is once again filled with people. But here, of course, the people are protected. Al chomotayich Yerushalayim, hifkadti shomrim, you see the comparison between the language that is used here and the language that is used in Echa. We're told that here God has himself placed guards on Jerusalem's walls so that they should uh, all day and all night uh, uh, pray to God and bring protection to the city. And so we've gotten back to the city. The city is once again rebuilt. The city is once again filled with people. The people have once again reassumed their role. And the guards of Jerusalem have um, begun to reassume their role of protecting Yerushalayim. Everything seems pretty good. And this is how the seventh Haftarah ends with these words. Chasdei Hashem azkir, tilot Hashem. Right? I'm going to sing about all of the chasadim of God, all of the kindnesses of God, all of the praise that I have towards God for, for, for acting with compassion, with kindness. Let, let's read the last pasuk of the seventh haftarah. Bechol tsaratam lo tsar. In all of their troubles, God was troubled, right? Be'avato hu He came in his love and in his compassion, and he redeemed Am Yisrael. So this is really a magnificent ending. But I do have a little bit of a problem with the ending, because here we are, we're on the cusp of Rosh Hashanah, and we're really, we're really pleased with the situation, right? And as you know, we had the opportunity to come back to Jerusalem. We found consolation. We found uh, Jerusalem's glory, we found our own role again, Yerushalayim filled up with people. And yet, I would venture to say, we're still not prepared for Rosh Hashanah. We're still not prepared to re-enter into a, uh, a relationship of tefillah with God. And the reason that I say that is because look at the next pasuk in Yeshayahu, Samech Gimel. This is how the Haftarah ends. But every time the Haftarah ends this way, I think it's a little bit, I'm going to use the word deceptive, but of course, I don't mean that in a critical way, because I know what the next Pasuk is, and, 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 and you're going to know too in a moment. This is probably one of the worst psukim in all of Tanakh, okay? It's one of only two places in Tanakh where God becomes the enemy of the people, right? This pasuk says, and then they rebelled against him and he became their enemy. And this sends us spiraling back to Echa again. There are only two places in all of Tanakh where God is described as the enemy of Am Yisrael, here and in Echa. And so we kind of find ourselves on the cusp of Rosh Hashanah, but we're still remembering God's enmity in Yeshayahu. 
How do we get to Rosh Hashanah? How do we fix our relationship with God? See, the problem in Echa, the major problem that is preventing us from getting to Rosh Hashanah, in my opinion, is tefillah. Right? Echa leaves us without tefillah. The gever, right? The, 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 the person in, in, in chapter three of Echa says, Gamki is akva ashavah, even when I cry out, even when I plead, satam tfilati, my prayer is blocked. God is not allowing prayer to get through. How do we get to Rosh Hashanah if we, if we haven't fixed prayer? How do we get to Rosh Hashanah if we haven't reestablished the lines of communication with God. <coughs> Echa ends by saying to God, God, you, you've been very angry at us. But Echa does not end by turning to God and saying to God, God, please don't be angry with us. Please re, re, restore the lines of communication. Where does this happen? This happens in the next part of Ishayahu. We're moving towards the end of the prophecies of Nechama. And Yeshayahu says to God, You were very angry. And we sinned. Look in Pasukei. We were all <coughs> impure. We were all sinful. This is the Echa problem. And no one, God, is calling on your name. Nobody is awakening to grab you. Because you have hidden your face from us. We are melting in our sins and we can't find you. You have hidden your face from us. We don't know how to call you. We don't know how to wake up and, and reestablish ties with you. How do we get to Rosh Hashanah if this is the continuation of Yeshayahu? Pasuk Zayin. Ve'ata Hashem avinu ata. Anachla chomer ve'ata yotzreinu u'maseyadcha kulanu. That's the transition to Rosh Hashanah. The statement, the belief that you, God, you are a parental figure you, God, are our father. You created us. The minute we have that belief, look at the next pasuk. This is the turning around of the end of Echa. Echa ends, katsafta aleinu ad me'od, and here Yeshayahu finally teaches us how we can uh, um, find the uh, ability to turn to God and say, al tiktsof Hashem ad me'od, don't be excessively angry at us. Ve'ala ad tiskoravon, don't remember our sin forever. Hen habetna, look God, restore your face to us. Amcha, Kulanu. We are all your nation. And it's that next movement, one that doesn't take place in the Nivuot of Nechama, 
but which seems to be sort of implied by leaving off the Nebuot Nechama, just at that point, it is that movement which we have to make in order to be able to go into Rosh Hashanah. And so these Haftarot of Nechama, these seven prophecies of consolation, they are the prophecies that accompany us on that very extraordinary yearly journey from Tisha B'Av to Rosh Hashanah, a journey that we go through every year and which teaches us that even at moments which seem to um, be, where we seem to be in the depths of despair, in those moments, we know that there is a rehabilitative process that lies ahead. That's what we learn every year as we progress through the Sheva Denechemta. Okay, so now I will happily uh, open for questions. Um, any questions, comments, thoughts? Can I make a comment? Sure. Sure. I think after listening to you and how how Mishayahu seems, seems to be responding so much to Eicha to to Yirmiyahu and Eicha that he's convinced me that it was a different author of Mishayahu, the second part that it's a different he must have lived different Mishayahu in a different period. Is that the conclusion? I mean, that, you know, I I don't really um, uh, draw that conclusion, but I'm not averse to that conclusion. It's, it doesn't really interest me so much. You know, there are different opinions as to whether or not Yeshayahu wrote this second uh, part of Echa in advance, right? We certainly do believe prophecy can be written in advance. Did he write it in advance? Did he write a whole section about events that have yet to take place, you know, 200 years from his time? I don't I don't know. I, I can't really draw that conclusion. But I can say that um I mean for me that's just less relevant. I can say it's possible, but both are possible. So I don't know, issues of authorship are far less critical to me than issues of substance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Especially since we can't know, we can only speculate. No, no that's yeah. Is someone raising their hand? Michal? Hi, yeah. First of all, these textual connections are amazing and so beautiful to see. I'm trying to wrap my head around the irony, if you will, that all these words of consolation are in the past and we are once again finding ourselves in exile, even though I imagine at the time that Yeshayahu spoke them, we thought this was it, right? This was our restoration forever. And I'm wondering if Chazal addresses that at all or or what your thoughts are about that that undercurrent yeah well first of all it certainly seems to be that at the end of the period of shivat Zion, which is the the book of malachi right the book of malachi is describing the failure of the period of shivat Zion, and that seems to be one of the last books in tanakh he's already looking forward towards the next exile right and so this kind of preparation for exile is um is 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 ongoing right that there is always a sense that humans are fallible and uh am Yisrael is held to a high standard but if we fail then you know exile is on the horizon that having been said i, I don't know i look at these chapters in Yeshayahu, and i cannot help but feel that they're 
coming to fruition before my eyes. I mean, I live in Israel and I watch things that are happening here. And I'm not saying that they're uncomplicated. Uh, and I, you know, I, I, I certainly am not saying that uh, Yeshayahu is uncomplicated. I mean, we read some of the very beautiful prophecies, but there are also moments of failure. There are also moments of crisis. There are also moments in which we're not sure we're gonna get through it. And sure enough, that that redemption has, uh, you know, has has uh, an unfortunate end, right? But I do think that there's a lot in Tanakh that is preparing us for exile. And again, not just the Babylonian exile. I think that Tanakh is preparing us for the possibility of more than one exile and what tools we need and what consolation needs to be provided and also what kinds of lessons we need to take with us uh, when that does happen. Uh, we have a comment in the chat, um, Alana Lubin, about um, the Pasuk, Anachna Komer Yotrinu, seems to call back, Yes, that is a very astute observation, and that, that they do seem to be connected. Um, it, you know, in general, this uh, notion that um, God can treat us you know, like a an earthenware pot is appears in several places in Tanakh. There's a chapter in Yirmiyahu, in Yirmiyahu Yudchet, where God is busily, uh, where God uh, uh, takes Yirmiyahu to a potter's house to watch the potter breaking his pottery. And God says, you know, that could be me, right? So again, you know, there is this uh, positive and negative element to uh to God being um the you know the yotzer of 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 people right the positive element is that he created us and therefore you know we rely on him the negative element is that it, it could uh we could be disposable right certainly if we are not living up to the standards uh for which we were created It seems like that's all the questions. Thank you so, so much, Dr. Ziegler. This was so lovely um, and such a, I think, kind of different from the other learning we've been doing um, in our fantastic Elsman. I, I know I've really been enjoying it. Um, and I just love this sort of um, continuous feeling of like sort of these seasons of the Jewish calendar and the connections between all of them. I'm, I've really enjoyed seeing that. Um, so thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Ziegler. Um, thank you to everyone who joined us here on zoom or on facebook um and i just want to tell you all we have again like i mentioned an amazing elsman which we are wrapping up and going on out really with a bang um we have a very full day even today um at 2 30 dr uh, sorry rabbi lady morrow is going to be speaking about the potential religious utility of fear at 2 30 so we would love if you can could um join us um as well we have a really really exciting new um project that is debuting at 4 p.m which is a music and liturgy project. Um, it will be coming out on Facebook and on YouTube and shortly will be available elsewhere. So please, please check that out. It's very, very exciting. It's been in the works for a while and I know I'm really excited to check it out. Um, and we've got 10 more classes coming up in the coming week up to, leading up to Rosh Hashanah. So please go to um and 
check out all of our really exciting upcoming program. Um, and Shana, that's everyone. Thank you so much.